0: Those who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the Gospel lesson. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that's been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, (coughs) and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, "'Well, they have Moses and the prophets. should listen to them.' "'He said, "'No, Father Abraham, "'but but, but if someone goes to them from the dead, "'they will repent.' "'And he said to them, "'If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, "'neither will they be convinced "'even if someone rises from the dead. "'Grass withers, the flower fades, "'but the word of our God stands forever.' The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I grew up in a world where men were obviously, undoubtedly, who would ever think otherwise, the most important gender. I mean, You know, if the man is created first and the woman is created to keep him company and he gets to name her, what other possibility could there be? Says so in the scriptures, doesn't it? I went to Lexington Theological Seminary. I was pretty full of myself. I just graduated with a master's in church history, early church mothers and fathers. In particular, I'd been a double major in Bible college, New Testament, and languages, biblical language, Greek and Hebrew. And so I figured, I mean, I pretty much had it what I wanted and what I needed to move on to work on my PhD, except money. Susan and I were pretty poor. We lived in a post-war bungalow in East Tennessee with a leaky Tin roof and a coal stove as its only heat source in the main room. We paid $150 in rent. And I had to mow the grass for our elderly landlord, Stanley and Ethel. we called it the Love Shack. If you've ever heard the song by the B-52s, and you got a kind of a picture of our living conditions. But after graduation, I, I needed a job that I was trained for. Working, catering at the local hospital didn't feel like a good long-term financial or vocational strategy for me. So I went back to seminary to work on my MDiv because they promised me free tuition and a job. Preaching in a church. And I wasn't wild about the preaching part so much, but we needed the money. And preaching or something very similar was about all I was good for. So we moved to Waddy, Kentucky, and I became the student pastor at Waddy Christian Church. Despite our nagging financial woes and my lack of enthusiasm for being a minister, I was pretty sure that I would breeze through this whole MDiv thing at at Lexington and then move on to grad school and a PhD program. After I began classes at LTS, I, I, I was even more convinced that I was much further along the theological trail than my counterparts. One of my first classes was New Testament introduction with one of my favorite professors of all time, Sharon Dowd. And after class class began, she wrote on the blackboard, Mark 12, 3. She then proceeded to explain that Mark, corresponded to one of the books in the Christian scriptures. That 12 was the chapter and that 3 was the verse. And then she said, let's practice. And we spent much of the first class practicing looking up passages in the Bible. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Come on, I'd already translated several of those books directly from Hebrew and Greek. I I mean, I was the reigning sword drill champion from Vacation Bible School. (laughs) What was this place supposed to be anyway? So after class, I went up to the front, I started, you know, I wanted to talk to Dr. Dot, and I said, "What do we have to do that stuff with, you know, looking up the Bible passages? I mean, do, 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 do people not already know how to do that? And she was really patient with my, what now seems to me like unbearable smugness. And as the last of the students exited the room, Dr. Dowd said, did you see that woman who just left? And I said, well, yeah. The one, that one, Uh, yeah, I saw her. She said, well, she graduated college with a biology degree before being called to study the preaching ministry. She's extremely bright. She doesn't have a background in this stuff. Give it a little time. She's going to impress you with how good she is. Yeah, sure she is, I thought. (laughs) See, that was another thing that was new to me. Given my background, I'd never gone to school with a woman who was studying to be a preacher before. I'd grown up believing that that wasn't even possible. Now, to be fair, I, I, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd started to sort of rethink this whole woman as subordinate to, uh, subordinates who should be quiet in church thing. And, 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 and I figured that it was kind of a, it was a really convenient male take on history. So, so even though I was moving away from male preachers as the only possible option, I hadn't actually ever seen an act, you know, a woman preacher in the wild. But as I watched her over that first semester, I I began to see just how sharp she was. And at first, like a a benighted dope, I, I, I attributed it just, you know, luck. But as I watched it, it dawned on me that she was really super smart. Like, impressively smart. Eventually, after some of my own struggles as a student pastor, I had to admit that this Woman biology major turned clergy person was better at this old pastor stuff than I was. Now, when that thought finally occurred to my peevish and stunted little brain, I was thunderstruck. My whole world was upended. I mean, it was a, it was a gestalt, right? you know, you know you're looking at a, a, a what you're sure is a picture of a rabbit, but then you see. The image of uh, a duck appear, and, and after you see it, you, you, you really can't get, you can't unsee it. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Those pictures where it just, you think it's, a, it, it, it's an old woman in a bonnet, and then you turn it sort of, and you go, oh, it's a young woman, and that ever happened to you? I mean, you're going along and everything seems normal, you, you, you've been doing this whole life thing for a while, and you start to get more comfortable. Pretty sure that the world works in a certain way. Your body's your ally, the basement doesn't leak, your bank account, your job, and your country are all stable and predictable. And then you get a call from the doctor's office with a bad diagnosis and you realize that your body switched sides on you and has started playing for the enemy. The basement has sprung a leak and now it's got six inches of standing water. You get a message that you're dangerously close to being evicted or foreclosed on, and your boss wants to discuss your job performance. You turn on the news and it dawns on you that the mostly competent leadership and stable government you've always taken for granted as a birthright have been threatened at best or hijacked at worst by bigots, crooks, and dopes. And suddenly you, you realize that the world you thought you lived in isn't the one you actually live in. See, that's exactly what's at stake in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The parable unfolds in a world where greed and self-interest seem to dominate the horizon of human interaction. Another there's a kind of greed and self-preoccupation condemned in scripture. But here in this parable, there's a drastic contrast between the rich and the poor. The rich man wakes up every day, has his mimosa out on the veranda, and he has to choose which car to drive to work. Does he want to take the Mercedes or the Jaguar? Of course, to get to the office, he has to walk past Lazarus, who lives under the overpass. So Jesus wants us to know right up front that things couldn't be more different between the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I suspect I know what Jesus is trying to do. He's, he's talking to a small crowd that includes the scribes, Pharisees, a group of Jewish leaders who've centered their lives on scrupulous commitment to the law. Unfortunately, they've convinced themselves that they've got the law hmm, pretty much figured out, and they're kind of resting right there in God's sweet spot. Uh, that that, that rich people are rich because God blesses them. There's ample evidence in the Hebrew Scriptures for that sort of thing. There are passages that say the rich get richer while the poor are mostly, you know, lazy freeloaders trying to figure out ever more ingenious methods of cheating the system. You know, the, the... the anchor babies, the welfare queens, and the garden variety of riffraff from whom most respectable folks avert their eyes, if not necessarily their contempt. See, that's how Jesus' adversaries viewed people like Lazarus. They prided themselves on being wealthy because of what that meant. They thought that meant God thought of them. What's worse, they'd come to the self-serving conclusion that helping somebody like Lazarus would actually interfere with God's punishment of him. I mean, come on, this, this guy must have been a, a hall of fame sinner to be that poor, that sick, that unnoticeable. It's better to let God deal with him. I mean, don't get in the way. You know, just, just, just relax and eat your eggs, Benedict. But Jesus has drawn the portrait of a rich man dressed in purple linen, that describes the religious fat cats who've been hassling him about what they believe is his sort of casual observance of the law. He didn't didn't take it seriously enough. But despite whatever passages they thought justified their self-righteous penchant for ignoring Lazarus's cry, Jesus calls them guilty. The poor lie at the gate with only the dogs to lick their sores, and all the religious leaders can do is sit. Sit while stomachs grumble from hunger, while sores run yellow with pus, while the houseless scratch for cardboard to cover their heads when the rain and the winds come. But they just sit while Lazarus dies a slow and agonizing death alone at the gate. But according to Jesus, according to a reading of the Hebrew scriptures themselves, that's not the world that God wants. In Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter, the the, the law of Moses specified that there will be no one in need among you. And it goes on to say a few verses later that the harvest should be shared with the poor and the transient. You shall open wide your hand to your sibling to the needy and to the poor in the land. And of course, the prophets, they, 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 they offered no release from the law. But just think about our reading from the prophet Amos today or the prophet Isaiah. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? To break every yoke? Is this Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? (coughs) And things were apparently not that different by the time Jesus showed up on the scene either. Rome, the imperial power broker, occupied Jerusalem sucking up all the resources throwing its weight around making a life generally miserable for those who weren't in a position to sell out as collaborators but the poor and the powerless they languished at the gates abused, ignored forgotten do you see Jesus' point is this no no matter what Bible passages you use to excuse yourself no matter how many televangelists tell you that God only wants a new private jet for you and a condo in veil, no matter how insulated you remain from the cries of the Lazaruses of this world, one simple reality cannot remain unchanged, uh, cannot be changed, and that is the reign of God does not exist where some do not eat. The religious leaders and the political muckety-mucks They've been telling themselves a myth in which their wealth and their power are signs of God's blessing on them while the poor and the outcast live under God's curse. In other words, in the world that Jesus occupied and arguably the one we ourselves continue to occupy, everybody already assumed that the person who should be held in Abraham's bosom would be, you guessed it, the wealthy and the powerful. And the one rightly cursed in Hades would be Lazarus. But Jesus flips that script by telling this parable. William Herzog argues that the the, the reversal of their expected fates undermined not simply the hearer's view of the afterlife, but even more importantly, their assumption that the present circumstances could be used as a reliable guide for discerning God's judgment, or to put the matter more pointedly, that, 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 that somehow social class was an indicator of divine blessing or honorable status. Once this connection, however, has been broken, the assorted rural poor of Galilee or Judea who heard the parable could begin to inquire into the reasons that their misery and why it was so much closer to home for them. In other words, this parable forced everyone to confront the brutal reality that they hadn't been living in the world they thought they were living in. I mean, think about this from their perspective. I mean, how was it possible for the rich and the powerful to find themselves in the flames while the, the, the unclean and the poor rested in the bosom of Abraham. It just doesn't make sense. That's not how the world's supposed to work. I mean, everybody knows that. If riches and poverty aren't a sign of God's blessing and curse, then what else are they supposed to be? I mean, if the rich man isn't the hero and Lazarus isn't a cautionary tale that you tell your kids so that they'll do their geometry homework and get into Harvard, well, then everything we've taken for granted as true about this world suddenly gets chucked out the window, doesn't it? If we are judged more by how we treat the invisible people, the people that everybody else agrees it's okay to ignore, than by by whether or not we've checked all the boxes for morality that everybody can see when we go out in public, well, that that changes everything. One time, Tony Campolo was speaking at an evangelical uh, rally. And they expected him to be his usual engaging, sort of storytelling self. You know, spin some clever yarns, entertain people, you know, make them think. But instead, Campolo wanted to talk about the responsibility of Christians for the Lazaruses of this world. But he's got a problem, right? I mean, how do you do that with people who already believe they're pretty much first stringers on God's varsity squad? I mean, how do you talk to people convinced that their primary responsibility as Christians is to follow the rules, yes, but the rules about caring for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner in your land? I mean, how do you capture the attention of people who are confident that they've got God pretty much figured out and and, and are really only in need of a few sort of minor alterations along the edges? How is it that you complicate that vision of the world enough that people begin to start to see the contours of a new world, a different world? So this is how he began. He said, by this time tomorrow night, almost 25,000 people in the world will die of hunger. Almost 275 people in this country alone will die tonight of a drug overdose. Every 40 seconds, someone who just can't seem to shake the idea anymore that this world wasn't made for people like them will, against the advice of Dylan Thomas, go gentle into that good night. Raging not against the dying of the light, but against the belief that there's no light bright enough to shine on them. And then he said, and you don't give a expletive deleted. Everyone in the audience just gasped. Their eyes wide with shock. And Campolo let the moment sort of linger unbearably long. And finally he said, you know how I know that? Because you're more concerned right now that I said expletive than about the fact that there's a whole world out there full of people that God created who are dying alone and unloved. Over its history, Christianity has burned people at the stake for all kinds of public sins. Heck, the church is even executed for believing the wrong things. But when was the last time the church burned somebody at the stake for clinging to wealth, for ignoring the beggars clawing at the gates for bread? You see the problem, right? The reign of God does not exist where some eat and some do not. Now, if you're sitting at a private table in the penthouse when you hear that news, it's not going to sound very comforting. If, on the other hand, you can't even get a seat at the lunch counter or look in the eye from the people who walk by you every morning on the way to work, then this might just be the good news that you've been looking for. If you don't even have the strength to chase off the dogs for the few crumbs that fall from the table of those who have more than they need, then the announcement that you might be living in a different world from the one you think you are living in at the moment, that might be the best news you've ever heard. And that's the gospel we have to tell.